You've got Dr. Wendy Walsh here, KFI AM 640. It is a Sunday afternoon, and if you know me, you know I have a Ph.D. in clinical psychology. You know I teach psychology of health counseling at Cal State Channel Islands and developmental psychology. You know I am obsessed with the science of relationships, and I don't think there's any more important relationship than the relationship we have with our children or the relationship we had with our parents because it is so shaping. It shapes our personality. It contributes to whether we grow up with fear and anxiety or feelings of security and love and trust for the world. And one of the reasons why I am obsessed with the science of love and obsessed with relationships isn't really for the happiness of the adults in these marriages. (laughs) It's really about the kids who show up. So later in the show, I want to devote a lot of time to parenting, some parenting tips. I've got some tantrum extinction strategies, if you have a kid who has uh, tantrums a lot. And I want to talk about what attachment parenting is. But first, in the news this week, uh, speaking of relationships, uh, President Trump has another woman who has come forward saying that she had a wild and raucous affair with him. Uh, She is a former Playboy model, and she tells of a, I think, nine- or ten-month affair. It seems to overlap the affair with Stormy Daniels, uh, the porn star. And this goes back to when son Barron, who's now 11 or 12, Barron might be 12 by now, um, was first born. So I know if you're a woman and you're hearing this and believing it, you're hearing, uh, wait a minute, so Melania is in a maternity ward somewhere or home with a baby nurse, and he's off having affairs with two women, a porn star and a Playboy model, and not just hookups. I mean, both these women talk about long-term frequent affairs with him. I believe uh, the Playboy model, what is her name? It's McDougal, Karen, Karen McDougal, um, said that he offered her money for sex. She has also told CNN and weepingly that she feels terribly guilty about the affair and she wouldn't want it done to her. Ladies, can we talk about pulling some of your girls' club cards? I mean, seriously. But you know what? When there's a high-status man, man, women will compete, and they will compete in all kinds of ways for his attention. So do you think this is the first time a man, especially a man of means, fooled around on his wife right after childbirth. It's something that women worry about. Uh, Do affairs take place more often when a woman is pregnant? Well, some of the research says slightly more often. However, there's also lots of other research to show that during the third trimester of a wife's pregnancy, a man's testosterone goes down. It's like Mother Nature designed uh, his sexual energy to suppress a bit, so that he could divert it towards protection and providing. Uh, But probably not somebody with the strong ego of Donald Trump. And when I say ego, or when I'm implying narcissism, uh, you know, by the way, that's a requirement for the job of president, um, you have to remember that the underbelly of all narcissistic personality disorder is a feeling of self-loathing. And there's no better way for a man to feel, imagine that he's, desired and loved than by having sex with other women, many women, etc. So Melania, 
Why does she stay? The world is looking at their marriage. I have to remind you, and I know I sound maybe cold and callous when I say this. Wouldn't we all like to have a fairy tale storybook marriage where you fall in love with somebody and the sex stays hot? There are no health problems. There are no money problems. Both people are devoted to the offspring that show up in that nest. Uh, There are no addiction issues. There's no cheating. You literally live happily ever after. Well, that's a fantasy. And that is not like most marriages. Most marriages may begin with love, may begin with lust, may begin with hot sex, may eventually have a great newlywed honeymoon year. Kids may show up at some point, And then the real work of relationships begin. And at all times during your marriage, people do a cost-benefit analysis on a regular basis. Generally, they will decide that what two people can accomplish together is greater than either could do individually. Let's just talk about finances. One of the easiest ways to double your wealth is to simply get married. Your expenses get cut in half and you get a whole other income coming into your household. I mean, come on, that's just realistic. And that's one of the reasons people stay. People stay for moral reasons for the kids. And indeed, there's research to say that staying together for the kids sometimes makes sense. I mean, if the relationship isn't what I call toxic, what's toxic? Toxic where there's um, domestic violence, severe emotional abuse, um, drug or alcohol addiction, chronic, chronic cheating. That's a toxic relationship and that's not a safe nest for children. But if it's bickering parents who aren't so into each other anymore, actually the research shows as long as they're still devoted to their kids and and the resources are going down to their kids, that um, the kids will do fine. If, on the other hand, divorce is something that puts kids into poverty, then it's better to stay together for the kids, always. So what is the marriage of Melania Trump and Donald Trump? Well, let's be realistic. Every relationship is an exchange of care. That care can take many forms. It can be sexual care, financial care, housekeeping care, child-rearing care. It can be uh, emotional care. It can be physical sick care, right? There are lots of ways that we care for each other. But when you're talking about a high-status marriage in the highest income bracket, the, the financial care is huge. It's a big one. I mean, like, if Melania was, you know, single immigrant girl from Eastern Europe and wasn't modeling, really, what job could she get? right? How employable is she? So she decided to make this man her job and her career. And of course, being the third wife and all those heirs to that fortune, it was very important that she produced an heir very early on. Now, back when I was on Extra back in 1996, I did a day in the life of Donald Trump where I literally followed him around one-on-one with uh, through New York on his chopper to Atlantic City. He was married to Marla Maples at the time, who I believe was pregnant with, uh, is her name, what is her name, Sterling? Uh, the sort of black sheep child. Anyway, she, uh, look it up, Joey, look it up. What was that other kid's name? Not Sterling, it was something else. Anyway, so uh, he told me flat out, I don't do fatherhood, I don't change diapers, this is women's business. So you will also find that the more income in a household, the more traditional the gender roles. Now, Why does Melania stay? The same reason you would stay. It's a pretty nice life, especially in the White House. 
she doesn't actually have to see him that often. She's a few public appearances, right? A little hand-holding there. But they're both very busy people going different directions, and she's got her life. She's got her son. She's got her ticket to financial security and her future. There's no reason for her to walk away from the deal she's got as First Lady. That's just what I'm going to say. All right, let's talk about Melania and Donald as parents when we come back. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. We're back with the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. The news this weekend, of course, yet another woman, I think we're up to three, talk about uh, affairs or sexual harassment, however you want to word it, with Donald Trump. Karen McDougal, a former Playboy model, that doesn't devalue her, by the way. And they always say, well, Playboy model. So therefore, she's set up to have sex, free sex with anybody. Not necessarily. Um, she agreed to sit down with an extensive interview with CNN's Anderson Cooper. And here's what she said about their affair. Were you attracted to him? I was attracted to him, yeah. He's, he's a nice-looking man. And, you know, I liked his charisma. I think I love, you know, good, great posture. He's got great posture. And he was nice. So the sex was consensual, just it was to be consensual, clear. Yes. You said it sort of ended on a, a strange note. So, <clears throat> what what happened after you had been intimate? Well, after we had been intimate, he he tried to pay me, and I actually didn't know how to take that. Did he actually try to hand you money? He did. Mm-hmm. He did, and I said, I mean, I just had this look of, I don't know, just. I don't even know how to describe it. The look on my face must have been so sad because I had never been offered money like that before, number one. But number two, I thought, does he think that I'm in this for money or why I'm here tonight? Or is this a normal thing? I didn't know. But I looked at him and I said, that's not me. I'm not that kind of girl. All right. First of all, I want to clarify one thing. Not that kind of girl. We're all that kind of girl. Sex is never free. (laughs) Whether we know it consciously or not, There's always a price that men pay for sex because I know you're going to hate me for saying this. Some of you, uh, it's politically incorrect, but men want sex more than women. Sex is a much higher risk hobby for women than it is for men. So as a result, women charge a higher price for it. Now, when I say price, it's not always monetary. The highest price that smart women charge for sex is commitment and care. So when she says, I'm not that kind of girl, she meant I'm not a low-priced girl who just charges cash or nice dinners or jewelry or gifts. I'm the kind of girl who, uh, you know, wants a boyfriend, who, you know, actually wants commitment. I'm sorry, so you're saying that there is actually always a price for sex? Always. And my favorite line, I can't remember which Woody Allen movie it was, but Madonna had a little role in it. And as Woody Allen's walking into a trailer to have sex with her as a prostitute, he says, oh, I'm so nervous. I've never paid for sex before. And she said, sure you have. You just didn't know it. Oh, wow. Okay. That's right on. Well, I was curious, though, because, you know, one gets a sense of like, oh, what about, you know, just true love or something? And so how does love actually factor into this? Because it sounds rather black and white. Just it's just commitment, you know? Well, okay. Love is the important device that evolved in us a feeling, an explosion of neurotransmitters and hormones that help people bond and get together long enough to create offspring and hopefully to raise and protect those offspring. In other words, the couples that were most in love, that were most bonded, their offspring survived and went on to carry on that gene. 
right? Um, so men do have better sex when they're in love. When they report that they are in love, they will say the sex is better. But men are much, it's much easier for most men, and I have to be careful because there's always an exception to every rule, um, for most men to separate sex from love. Women, on the other hand, when they enter a sexual relationship, their bodies excrete a lot of oxytocin, the cuddle hormone, the bonding hormone, during female orgasm. And as a result, they tend to fall in love through sex. If a woman starts to consistently have sex with the same guy over a period of time, she's going to start to fall in love because her body will bond. So <clears throat> these women, Stormy Daniels, Karen McDougal, um, probably thought they were the kind of girl that you didn't pay, the kind of girl that you offered love to because they were falling in love perhaps by having sex with him on a regular basis. Um, so I guess the big Stormy Daniels interview is coming up tonight, in fact, on 60 Minutes. Uh, the uh, I guess you could call her an adult film star uh, who says she had an affair with Donald Trump will be broadcast tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern on CBS uh, with Anderson Cooper. And this is the first time that she's talking in a television interview about what happened with her. So uh, it continues. Let's talk about Trump, Donald Trump, as a father, though. You know, humans have the widest range of paternal investment of any primate. Some men, their only contribution to fatherhood is the donation of a teaspoon of sperm. At the other end of the scale, you've got baby-wearing, carpool-driving, softball-throwing, doting dads. And we have everything in between. Generally, the more money a man makes, the more you will start to find traditional gender roles enter the house. Because it doesn't make sense for both people to be working if there's enough money to go around. So somebody takes care of the kids. And in Donald Trump's case, indeed, when I did a day in the life of Donald Trump back when I was on Extra, um, you know, he said, I don't change diapers. And all three of his wives, his two ex-wives and his current wife say, no, he doesn't actually hold babies or do anything to do with. No, 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 no. Um, so he, ha he is the father of five kids. Donald Jr. from wife of Ivana. Donald Jr. is 40. Ivanka Trump is 36 and Eric is 34. Then remember he had that affair with Marla Maples. The big thing that happened in Aspen in the early 90s where uh, Ivana Trump accosted her on a ski hill and there was this big uh, drama. And so he divorced her, married Marla Maples. She gave birth to Tiffany. Tiffany, I thought her name was Sterling. It's Tiffany. Uh, she's out here in California trying to stay out of it. Poor Tiffany seems to be the black sheep child. She's 24. Then later in comes Melania Trump, who ends up uh, marrying him and giving birth to Baron, who's 12. What I do like about Melania is I believe Baron is getting the best parenting out of all the kids for two reasons. One is her grandparents, his grandparents, her parents, moved over and lived in Trump Tower to help her raise him. So he's got lots of secure attachment figures around him. Secondly, when he was sworn in last a year ago, January, she spent an extra semester in New York with her child not to disrupt his education, to stay with him and not bring him to the White House right away. And that shows me that she really cares about her child. Now he's living in the White House. He's going to, I believe, St. Andrews and uh, a small school, private school, of course. I'm sure lots of extra security around there now. But the classes are only 11 or 12 students. So um, I think of all the kids, now I don't know about Marla Maple's relationship with Tiffany, but I think Barron's probably getting a lot of love and a lot of attention. Uh, so 
Let's turn the show to parenting because I haven't talked about parenting in a long time and I've got all kinds of parenting tips and questions to ask yourself. So whether you are becoming a parent, thinking about it, whether you're in the throes of the hardest job that exists with the lowest paycheck uh, and need some help. Um, And later in the end of the show, let's talk about empty nest and relationships with your adult children. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. We'll go for a news break and I'll be right back. Welcome back to the Dr. Wendy Wells Show on KFI AM 640. Isn't parenting the hardest job in the entire world with the lowest paycheck? And don't even get me started talking about how society does not support parents. Because you're going to email me and say, well, parenting's a luxury. It's your decision to have kids or not. All right, maybe I will get on my soapbox a little bit (laughs) and explain this. So here's what you need to know. We are put on this planet to reproduce. While not every human reproduces, even those that don't still help out in some ways. Anthropologists call them alloparents. Like, for instance, one in five women do not have babies. But don't tell me they're not taking care of people. They're taking care of the elderly. They're taking care of their sister's kids. They're taking care of business that's making life better for families and employing parents. They are taking care of charities. They're getting involved in public policy that affect families. Don't call that not parenting. All right? So we're all parents. If you're in the culture, we're all parents. Now, the question is, are we raising kids that will grow up to be expensive prisoners for our society? Or are we raising kids that will be productive citizens who become great employees or great entrepreneurs, right? But for some reason, because kids don't have a vote, or because people think somehow parenting is a selfish enterprise, (laughs) I've never given so much of my life in such a selfless way as with parenting, although you could argue it's your genes, right? I remember one time when my kids were little, someone said to me, because I was exhausted, I mean, you can get pretty depleted pretty fast being a parent. And someone said to me, you know, you need to do something to make yourself happy. Because if you're not happy, your kids are not going to be happy. So you need to be a happy parent. And I thought about it for a minute. And I said, you know what? Actually, my kids' happiness is my happiness. So when I'm giving to my kids and they're doing well because of it, then that is my happiness. Now, don't misread that. I don't believe kids are supposed to be happy all the time, right? Being a good parent means having logical consequences and boundaries Uh, And in a few minutes, I want to talk about, uh, you know, hallmarks of attachment parenting, which is what I practice. Did I say past tense? You know, I still have one baby in the nest, although she's 14. So I guess I could use past tense, practiced. But I'm still in the business for a few more years, the parenting business. Uh, And I want to talk about if you have a kid who has tantrums, I don't think I've talked about this in a long time. I went through a tantrum extinction training. Yes, I did at UCLA with my kid, who's a little bit on the spectrum and really was a wild tantrumer for a good six years. Oh, it was fun. And I learned some techniques that I would like to share with all parents. And if you have a kid who's completely neurotypical, it's easy to do this kind of training. Um, All right. But first, here are some questions that maybe you should be asking yourself about your parenting. Maybe you're thinking of becoming a parent Maybe you are a parent and questioning it. Uh, 
But these are my kind of questions that I'm going to call parenting tips for today. Our top 10 parenting tips. Question one, is parenting a priority to you? To what extent do you think that parenting is the most important job in your life? Well, I can honestly tell you that up until I had only one teenager left alone in the nest, because now I'm, I've diversified, okay? I have all these new kids that I'm teaching. I call them kids. My students at Cal State Channel Islands. And I have jobs that I do here at KFI and other places. So I have many people that I'm nurturing in different ways. But when I had two kids in the nest and they were not high school age, parenting came first. And what I learned is that the universe will align behind you as long as you're clear within yourself. For instance, back in 1998 uh, or maybe nine, I was working for CNET up in San Francisco. It was a growing tech company. I hosted a TV show there called TV.com where we explained to people what they could do with the internet. And um, it involved me traveling to San Francisco. And I basically, as I negotiated my contract, because I had a 15-month-old who was still on the boob, still breastfeeding, and I negotiated into my deal that if I ever needed to be away from my baby more than 24 hours, they had to provide an extra airline ticket and uh, for a nanny and a lap baby. And that was that, that they had, I had to bring my kid with me. And I went to the NatP television convention in New Orleans with an 18-month-old. That was fun. Uh, but I did it. And uh, my kid sat in a lot of green rooms and makeup rooms breastfeeding. And all, and they were all men who negotiated my contract. They were fathers. And they had no problem. So once you're clear with yourself that parenting is your priority, you will see that the world will line up behind you. And if you have to make a choice between like, you know, doing something for yourself, watching your favorite TV show or reading a bedtime story to your kids, what do you think? All right. Number two, what are your parenting goals? I know this is a silly, silly question, but let's think about it. What do you want to achieve as a parent? In 30 years, what are the memories do you want to have banked, right? Does it involve travel? On my own childhood, it was those camping trips that I bitched about and hated as a young teenage girl because I couldn't plug in my blow dryer anywhere. But uh, I look back on it and I'm like, oh, we had such good family camping trips. I loved it. So I traveled a lot with my kids, even if we had to live low. And I will be quite honest with you, during the depths of the Great Recession, my kids and I lived in a studio apartment, but it did not stop us from traveling internationally. So by the time my eldest graduated high school, she had been to 16 different countries. I found ways to do it. There are ways that you don't have to travel posh. Thank you, Airbnb and VRBO. And thank you for your frequent flyer points sitting in the back of the plane with the kids is not fun. But I did it because I thought international travel was so important. And I want them to have those memories. Um, All right. Third parenting tip question you should ask, ask yourselves as a good parent. How often do you let your kids be? Now, what I mean by this is, on one hand, we want to make parenting a priority in our lives. We want to give our kids all that we have. But we don't want to become hover parents because children actually grow in our gaps. That night that we are really overtired and they have the Volcano Science Project due and you got the supplies, but you can't help them with it because whatever, you got a flu bug. Um, They got to figure it out, right? 
and they will grow when we let them be a little bit. I am definitely not a hover parent, and that's why lots of kids like to hang out at my house, because they've been free-range kids. By the time they're 12, they have a house key, and they have a little budget, and they're out the door. And luckily, I live in a neighborhood where you can walk places. And of course, other parents are like aghast. What? On Venice Beach? You let 12-year-old girls walk on the boardwalk? I'm like, yeah. I mean, they're going to figure out life, right? And this is life. I mean, what? They know not to go into the pot shops. Those fake doctors and the fake doctor outfits, they come right out. It's illegal. But they walk right out to the teenagers and try to get them into the pot shops. I know, I know, I know. It makes me so mad. But I've educated them, and I've been there with them, so they're prepared. I was prepared. What animated movie is that from? Okay. Strange memory came back. Um, all right. When we come back, more parenting tips from Dr. Wendy and questions you should be asking yourselves so that we can all be not the best parent, but the best good enough parent. I'll explain when we come back. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI. Oh, help me, please, doctor. I'm damaged. Welcome back to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Uh, talking parenting. So listen, ever been on a plane where there's a screaming kid having meltdown tantrums? How about in a restaurant? Walking through a museum? In a store, like a nice high-end store. Kid throwing around merchandise makes you angry, right? Do you ever say to yourself, that parent needs to control that child? (sighs) There's something I want to disclose to you. That was me. I was that parent for six years. Now, this is long before my child was diagnosed with mild autism, auditory processing disorder, ADHD, She did not have the language to express her frustration. Um, I am a well of empathy and compassion. And so when a child is in distress, my initial move is to try to console the child. I have never, ever seen a child who's screaming that calms down because a parent screams back or because a parent hits. So if you ever saw me or any other parent in public with a tantruming child and had the thought, I think that parent should control that child... What do you expect us to do? Do you expect us to stop living? If the older child needs to get food on our way to whatever practice, we're dragging along the screaming two-year-old. If we've got to get on a plane for business or to see family, we've got the screaming two-year-old with us. Sorry. I'm unapologetic because you don't know when you judge what is going on with that family and that child. However, By the time my daughter was six, she was having tantrums two, three times a day. Sometimes they could last 45 minutes. Listen, when she was two, she had a tantrum that lasted so long that she lost her voice. She screamed at such a high pitch, and I swear, it felt like a knife going in my ears. And she screamed for so long, she lost her voice for the whole next day. And I had a reprieve. I'm like, oh my God, this is great. Um, So, once my daughter got diagnosed and I sought out help, I went to something called the Friendship Program at UCLA. Love it, love it, love it. There's a lovely sociologist, I believe, up there. Or marriage. No, I think she's a doctor of sociology. Anyway, her name is Cynthia Whittem. And that woman is an angel because she teaches parents how to, quote, unquote, control their kids, but not in the way you're thinking. All right. Step one for tantrum extinction uh, technique. Uh, Remove everything breakable from your house. Hide it. Because here's what happens. 
when it's going to get worse before it gets better. So the behavior will increase. She also taught us that if children cannot get positive behavior from parents or positive response and reaction, they will get negative uh, attention because all children deserve attention. All children need attention. All children want attention. So what's been happening is the tantrums with my daughter was actually giving her a reward, which was the good mommy. It was the compassionate me going, it's okay. I'm right here. Let me hold you. It's going to be all right. So she was actually getting rewarded for the negative behavior, even though I was trying to calm her down and I could see she was in distress. So, but also if I yelled at her or said, stop it, or tried to spank her or whatever, that's also getting mommy's attention, negative attention, but she's still getting rewarded in some way. So what Cynthia, Cynthia Whittem at the friendship program at UCLA taught us is that she was to be given no reward. But wait, giving her the silent treatment, blocking her out, is, not, is only half of the situation. You also have to catch her being good. So step one was to spend an entire week doing everything you've always done, the same way you've always done it, except you want to give her a new reward system. So instead of, you know, changing anything with the negative behaviors, you just want to catch them doing things you like. And that takes a lot of work. Here's a great example. You're trying to get your kid to practice the piano every night. And you sit down with your kid for a few minutes because the kid's going bonk, bonk, bonk on the keys and not doing the scales like they're supposed to. So you sit down. You give them your positive attention, right? And then they play nicely for you. And as soon as you get up and leave the chair, they start going bonk, bonk, bonk again. Because guess what they've learned? The negative attention, the negative behavior is giving them mommy's attention. So you flip it around. So for the first week, honestly, even if the only positive behavior a kid has is like to sit up on one elbow when you're trying to get them out of bed, you go, oh, I see you're getting up. This is great, right? And give them a little kiss. Is you find anything you like that they're doing and reward it with attention. Give them love, compliment them on them, give them a little touch, touch uh, on the shoulder, whatever. Just be nice to them. So now they realize, oh, there's a new cocaine out there. It's the happy mommy. Wow, that's what I have to do to get that? So then... Week two, after you've caught them being good all week, the first time they do the negative behavior, other rule is don't try to change every single behavior at once. If you're doing tantrum extinction, great. If you're trying to get them to school on time, great. Whatever negative behavior you have, um, and you do one at a time. And what you do now is as soon as they start the negative behavior, you say, you tell them the behavior you want and say, you will get a response from me when I see the good behavior. So in my case, even though she was screaming at the top of her lungs, I was told that she could still hear me. I said, when you do a behavior that I like, which was when I hear a voice that I like, you'll get mommy's attention. And that girl screamed for 45 minutes. She tried to break things. She tore up the house. And I had to run around now again, not slamming cupboards and uh, whistling under my breath and sighing. I had to pretend that nothing was happening. I got myself busy. I folded laundry. I loaded the dishwasher. I cleaned up. I did so much stuff. Anyway, eventually she tore the sweatshirt I was wearing, literally, to trying to get my attention because I'm walking around ignoring her. And I looked down, ready to lose my mind, and instead said to myself, wow, I haven't done any sewing in a while. 
I said it out loud too. So I went up and got the sewing kit and I was trying to thread the needle. I'd taken the sweatshirt off and I was trying to thread the needle. Kid is still screaming, full on screaming, been screaming for 45 minutes. And all of a sudden she flipped like a light switch flipped off. Kid goes, hey, mommy, I can help you thread that needle. And you know, at that point, I wanted to give her bad mommy. But remember, I have her hooked on a new cocaine now, which is good mommy. And that's behavior I like, right? It was a voice I liked. That's what I promised, right? So I had to say, oh, really, honey? Come, let's sew together. And so after listening to screaming for 45 minutes and destroying my house, we sat there and I showed her how to sew together the tear on my sweatshirt. I didn't say, oh, you could have controlled yourself earlier. Well, we wouldn't have this problem if you didn't tear my sweatshirt. I did not give her negative reward for positive behavior. I gave her good mommy for good behavior. Guess what? After that horrible day, she didn't have a tantrum for like six weeks. After having three a day for six years, there was a little regression from time to time, and I realized it was all my reward system. So here's what you need to do, parents. Catch your kids being good more regularly. Give them a positive reward. Give them love for being good. And when you have negative behavior, ignore the negative behavior and say, you will get my attention when I see the behavior I like. You will be amazed at the transformation in your life. You've on calming down yourself while the negative behavior is taking place. All right, we're going to continue with more parenting tips when we come back. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I pause to tell you that there's something special I'm doing on the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show today. We are giving away a pair of Dodgers tickets to opening day. Opening day, if you don't know, is this Thursday, March 29th at 4.10 p.m. versus the San Francisco Giants. Yes, we're giving away a pair of Dodger tickets. All you got to go do is call me right now. And that number is, what's our number? 1-800-520-1KFI, 1-800-520-1534. Give me a call if you want a pair of Dodger tickets. KFI AM 640. I'm talking parenting today. Listen, nobody is a perfect parent. And as I said, kids do grow in our gaps. You know what we hope to be? We hope to be the best good enough parent, right? That's what we hope to be. Not a perfect parent, but the best good enough parent. And so another question I think you should ask yourself when it comes to you and your kids is, how strong are your relationships with your kids? Now, I'm not talking about how much time you spend doing homework with them, I'm not talking about how much time you spend driving them, unless you're talking about deep stuff. I'm not talking about how much you discipline them or how you, what you pay for for them. I'm talking about your feelings. Do you guys have activities that you do together? Joey, when you were growing up, was there something that you did with your parents that you actually enjoyed? Uh, absolutely. I mean, when I was a kid, that was, well, it's like the best times of my life. Aww, <laughs> so, you had uh, good parents. So give me an activity that you like to do with your parents. Um, you know, I was uh, in a single uh, parent home with mm-hmm. my mother, but anytime we just hung out and, and did the regular, go to the movies. Really, the movies. Like yeah, my daughter and I like to go to the movies yeah, together. Yeah, go to the movies. Um, and you know what that means, by the way, parents, is it means that you can't go to R-rated movies. Right? So, you know, what I found as my solution when the kids were little is they wanted to see, you know, kid animated movies. This is in the days of DVDs. Uh, now we can order anything on the Internet right away and pay for it. But um, they wanted to go kid-related movies, and I wanted to see 
movies that were made more for adults. And so I discovered classic movies, especially musicals. We went through all the Marilyn Monroe movies uh, and we watched a lot of old movies because they weren't filled with sex and violence, right. but they were something that it was good for me. It was art to watch, classic movies, yeah. and and they found it interesting as well. I remember with uh, with my dad particularly. He, you know, he worked here at KFI for a long time on the Bill Handel show. So That's he, right. He had that early morning. Your family. Schedule. I, I it's kind of kind of weird. About <laughs> uh, but. He always used to love taking me and my sister, my sister and I, to the uh, kids' movies, to like Benji, The Haunted, yeah. I'll just say, or any yeah. of these cartoons. Why? Because that was nap time for Dad. Because <laughs> he, was oh, so he tired would fall asleep. I'm working. Yeah, I will yeah. say it's rough for me. I'm not a big fan of anime, animated movies, although Disney and Pixar. 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 Thank you. <laughs> Maybe I'm getting early Alzheimer's. Uh, no, uh, have really stepped up. And Coco, I loved. It was just such a beautiful thing. Moana, I loved. Yeah. And they were animated movies. I think they write in a bu- uh, enough things now for the adult audience yeah. there, you know, subtext. Insider jokes. Exactly. So anyway, the message here is when you have a good, solid, trusting relationship with your kids, not just a punitive, disciplinary, I'm the parent, listen to me, and respect me kind of relationship, that kids will more likely disclose to you. You're not going to have a lot of secrets. And you'll be there to help them resolve their difficulties. You know, for instance, we were driving home from a cheer practice last night and she'd had a run-in with a coach over something. And she was, you know, going on and complaining that he'd called her dumb because she couldn't do a back handspring or something. And, you know, those coaches, they don't have any psychological training. They just, they're rough sometimes. And uh, I said, well, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to call the coach? Do you want me to write an email to somebody? And she's like, for once, can you just listen and let me vent? (laughs) And I was like, yeah, there you go. She is just telling me exactly what she needs. She needs to just vent, and she can handle it on her own. Did that hurt your feelings in any way? No, I was relieved. Really? Last thing I wanted to do was have to get involved with the life of a 14-year-old, <laughs> because then you really do look like a hover parent, okay, yeah. having to email the coach, uh, you know? Um, and, you know, if you've been listening to me for a while, you know that this one particular daughter has a host of learning disabilities, has mild autism, and as a result, um, you know, I do need to sort of because when your kid has invisible disabilities, people often forget. And so I do have to kind of nudge people from time to time and go, oh, remember, she have a, she has auditory processing disorder. She can't really process when you're talking quickly. And she probably didn't, if she visually didn't have a cue, didn't know what was going on. Or, you know, I just have to step in and just kind of remind them about some of her deficiencies. But I was so happy that she's like, no, I'll work it out. Just let me vent here, which means... You know, she's going to be tough for the world, which is what we want. Um, Okay, here's another really, really important one as a parent. Can you admit when you're wrong? This is so important because no human gets it right all the time. And children have a very clear sense of justice. They want life to be fair. And I know we love to say, well, life isn't fair, all right? (laughs) Did you see I, Tanya, by the way? Oh, Joey, 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 you got to see I, Tanya. Why? This one my 14-year-old daughter wanted to see with me, and we ordered it online. Uh, you know, I, I believe the media's version of Tanya Harding, that she was just this cold athlete who her and her husband probably paid this guy to knock out Nancy Kerrigan's knee. And who knows what the truth is? It's a Hollywood movie. But this was the story of her upbringing oh. and her mother. Okay. Oh, oh, huh. oh. The abuse that happened in her life, it was terrible. So anyway, her mother clearly, at least if you believe the Hollywood version of it, her mother clearly could not admit that she was wrong and was a very, very, very critical and abusive parent. So listen, 
if you can't show your weakness, if you can't show your feelings sometimes and your vulnerability, how do you expect your kids to ever be honest about their feelings? Now, granted, there are parents that just go over the top with guilt. I'm so sorry. I was so wrong. And I didn't mean to yell at you like that. And Hey, I do apologize when I go from zero to 60 in a second and it's really about something else and I'm taking it out of my kid. We all do it once in a while. So you apologize later. You ask the kid how that affected them and then you move on, right? You don't have to wallow in it, but it's okay to admit you're wrong because this models responsibility for actions for kids. All right. uh, Where are we now in our time? Should I have time for one more? Yeah. Okay. So here's another parenting tip. Do you reflect the qualities you want your your children to value? Yeah, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And if if somebody asked me, Dr. Wendy, could you give me just one parenting tip, only one, I would say, it is not what you say, it's what you do. The best way to parent is keep yourself in check. That means look at your behaviors, look at your critical tongue, Look at how you speak about others. Look at the kindness you extend to others because little eyes and little ears are paying attention. And your kid is far more likely to turn out exactly as you are than how you wish them to be. So think about it. Parenting is an inside job. It's about learning to manage our own feelings learning how to express our feelings in a healthy way. It's about learning how to be kind, uh, you know, moral, being a moral person. If you can do that, then that's who your kid is going to be. All right, when we come back, I've got a few more parenting tips for you. And later, do you have a kid who tantrums all the time? I've got some tantrum extinction techniques for you. And let me talk a little bit about attachment parenting. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI. KFI AM 640. I am talking parenting, uh, revisiting with fond memories some of the early days of parenting. Although I will say that the first year when you have a baby at home, what's really happening is it is the year that you are giving birth to a parent. It is like a second pregnancy of sorts. Your whole world is being realigned when you have that new soul in the house. I remember when I was very, very pregnant with my first one, saying to my OB, I can't wait till this baby gets out so I can have my life back again. (laughs) Little did I know, it would be 18 years before I would have some semblance of my life back again. Because you really never get life back that you knew before. But in the transition, and there's been research on this, Um, people are asked how much they think a friend has changed since they've had a baby. And most of the friends say not much. But if you ask the parent, the mother or the father, they say enormously. They feel like a different person. And I must tell you, there's so much research on the burst in neuroplasticity that happens to our neurochemistry after the birth of a baby, both for mother and father. It is not coincidental, I believe, that while I was nursing each of my kids for three years each, that's six years I was a Dairy Queen, folks, uh, I went back to graduate school and got a PhD, a master's and a PhD in clinical psychology. Because now I look back on it and I'm like, wow, my brain was just bursting with new synapses growing 
as my neuroplasticity had a chance to increase. You look at the world differently when you're in a new parent. You're a new parent. All of a sudden, you look at billboards and ads, and you're like, wait, my daughter's going to read that? Wait, my kid could see that? Wait a second. And all of a sudden, the world looks very different to you. So while I was pregnant with my first one, I read a lot of parenting books. I was and a lot of child development and I was concerned about the brain that was developing inside me and the brain that I would be partially responsible for helping to develop once it got outside of me. And I stumbled upon an area of parenting literature called attachment parenting. I now laugh at that name and simply call it parenting. Like, isn't it just parenting? Um, But there is an area of psychology that I'm particularly obsessed with called attachment theory, begun by the grandfather of attachment theory, John Bowlby in England in the middle part of the last century. He was a pediatrician who studied children that had become separated from their parents. And he followed them through life and looked at mental illness, personality disorders, all related to attachment. Long before Bowlby came along, they thought that the child, like an animal, would just attach to whoever fed it. Uh, Instead of, remember the Harlow's Monkeys experiments? We should put Harry Harlow's Monkey Experiments from YouTube up on my webpage, Joey. Oh, my gosh. This is where they debunked the theory by they put these poor little... They wouldn't be allowed to do these kinds of experiments today because they were so emotionally cruel to baby monkeys. They put them in a cage where there was one scary-faced wire mother that was cold and awful, a little robotic thing, and she had a feeding tube coming out of her. And the other was a soft, cuddly, furry stuffed animal mother and they found that the babies would almost starve to death cuddling to the soft mother rather than going to the one that fed it so debunk that one it's not about feeding our kids it's about feeding them with emotional security so in the attachment uh, world Various uh, writers have come up with all these attachment parenting books. My favorite is Dr. Sears, the father and the son. I worked with the son, Dr. Sears, when I was on The Doctors and his father. Uh, His book is, I think, just called The Baby Book, but it's my favorite parenting book for babies. And I want to go over some of the hallmarks of what I call attachment parenting. So people who practice attachment parenting look at our hunter-gatherer past and our evolutionary history and said, oh, wait a sec. We didn't have cribs down the hall with baby monitors. We didn't have Gerber baby food. Uh, We had breasts and we had the warmth of a mother's body. And so let's start at the beginning. The first hallmark of attachment parenting is co-sleeping, sleeping with your baby. Now, for those who think that it is unsafe to sleep with a newborn, most of the research out there that connects co-sleeping with sudden infant death syndrome, there was always an obesity issue with the parents or drug or alcohol use. In other words, the parents were not in their right mind and they were sleeping way too heavily. Now, obviously, you don't want a lot of fluffy duvets. You don't want to have the baby fall deep into the blankets. But a baby sleeping beside you is perfectly fine because studies in sleep labs show that when parents sleep with their babies, they go on the same sleep cycle as the infant. In other words, as the baby is reaching light sleep about 90 minutes into their sleep, they wake up wanting a breast, and that's when mom happens to be in her light sleep. So you roll over, you feed the baby, you go back to sleep. That's a whole different experiment. Experiment? Experiment? No, experience. A whole different experience than being in a deep, deep REM sleep in a, on an adult sleep cycle 
hearing a baby screaming down the hall or through a baby monitor. Baby is full on awake now, screaming and screaming. By the time the parent gets fully awake, gets there, picks up the baby, goes to the kitchen, heats up a bottle, turns on light, everybody's awake. No wonder parents and babies are so overtired when there's a newborn in the house, okay? So uh, co-sleeping, I used actually for the second kid, because I still had the first one at bed, I used one of those co-sleepers. It was sort of a bed that attached to my bed, and uh, I would just roll her over and breastfeed her. Another hallmark of attachment parenting is baby wearing. Skin-to-skin contact is so important. So even if you formula feed, get naked, wrap your baby up with you, skin-to-skin contact is very important. It releases oxytocin. It helps the bonding. Um, The other is consistent attachment care. Babies can form multiple attachments, but a revolving door of caregivers is very disruptive to babies. So whatever you have, make it be consistent. Babies thrive on consistency. And also emotional mirroring. Talk to your babies. Oh, I see you're feeling sad. I see you're unhappy that your diaper's wet. Respect your baby. Hi. I'm going to lift your body now so I can take off your diaper. Guess what? They are understanding most of the English language at about nine months of age. They don't have the uh, oral dexterity to create the words until later. They're not developmentally able to talk, but they're understanding a lot. So start from the beginning, giving a baby names for their feelings. Oh, I see you're angry. I can see you feel cold. It's okay. Mommy's here. Mommy loves you, etc. And I will end on one note when it comes to breastfeeding. Uh, I am not a breastfeeding Nazi. I am a breastfeeding proponent. And I say until 1932, virtually every human on the planet was breastfed by themselves or a wet nurse. And there are lots of cultural supports that many women can and should get. Um, And there are lots of barriers to nursing that make women feel very guilty when they don't breastfeed. However, breastfeeding is not only good for the baby's health, it's good for the mother's health, it's good for the mental health of both, and it promotes bonding and attachment parenting. So I am a big, big proponent of breastfeeding and starting when you're pregnant, thinking about the obstacles and barriers that might happen so that you can work around it. Because it is hard when you're working full time and you're pumping, even the sometimes when I did it, it was difficult. Okay, do you have a kid who has tantrums, screaming, meltdown tantrums in the most inopportune times, in the most embarrassing places. I had one of those for six years. I'm going to tell you how I cured her. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Welcome back to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Uh, Talking parenting. So listen, ever been on a plane where there's a screaming kid having meltdown tantrums? How about in a restaurant? Walking through a museum in a store, like a nice high-end store. Kid throwing around merchandise. Makes you angry, right? Do you ever say to yourself, that parent needs to control that child? (sighs) There's something I want to disclose to you. That was me. I was that parent for six years. Now, this is long before my child was diagnosed with mild autism auditory processing disorder, ADHD. She did not have the language to express her frustration. Um, I am a well of empathy and compassion. And so when a child is in distress, my initial move is to try to console the child. I have never, ever seen a child who's screaming that calms down because a parent screams back. 
or because a parent hits. So if you ever saw me or any other parent in public with a tantruming child and had the thought, I think that parent should control that child, what do you expect us to do? Do you expect us to stop living? If the older child needs to get food on our way to whatever practice, we're dragging along the screaming two-year-old. If we've got to get on a plane for business or to see family, we've got the screaming two-year-old with us. Sorry. I'm unapologetic because you don't know when you judge what is going on with that family and that child. However, by the time my daughter was six, she was having tantrums two, three times a day. Sometimes they could last 45 minutes. Listen, when she was two, she had a tantrum that lasted so long that she lost her voice. She screamed at such a high pitch, and I swear, it felt like a knife going in my ears. And she screamed for so long, she lost her voice for the whole next day. And I had a reprieve. I'm like, oh my God, this is great. Um, So, once my daughter got diagnosed and I sought out help, I went to something called the Friendship Program at UCLA. Love it, love it, love it. There's a lovely sociologist, I believe, up there. Or marriage. No, I think she's a doctor of sociology. Anyway, her name is Cynthia Whittem. And that woman is an angel because she teaches parents how to, quote unquote, control their kids, but not in the way you're thinking. All right. Step one for tantrum extinction uh, technique. Uh, Remove everything breakable from your house. (laughs) Hide it. Because here's what happens. When it's going to get worse before it gets better. So the behavior will increase. She also taught us that if children cannot get positive behavior from parents or positive response and reaction, they will get negative uh, attention because all children deserve attention. All children need attention. All children want attention. So what's been happening is the tantrums with my daughter was actually giving her a reward, which was the good mommy. It was the compassionate me going, it's okay. I'm right here. Let me hold you. It's going to be all right. So she was actually getting rewarded for the negative behavior, even though I was trying to calm her down and I could see she was in distress. So, but also if I yelled at her or said, stop it, or tried to spank her or whatever, that's also getting mommy's attention, negative attention, but she's still getting rewarded in some way. So what Cynthia Cynthia Whittem at the Friendship program at UCLA taught us is that she was to be given no reward. But wait, giving her the silent treatment, blocking her out is not, is only half of the situation. You also have to catch her being good. So step one was to spend an entire week doing everything you've always done the same way you've always done it, except you want to give her a new reward system. So instead of, you know, changing anything with the negative behaviors, you just want to catch them doing things you like. And that takes a lot of work. Here's a great example. You're trying to get your kid to practice the piano every night. And you sit down with your kid for a few minutes because the kid's going bonk, bonk, bonk on the keys and not doing the scales like they're supposed to. So you sit down. You give them your positive attention, right? And then they play nicely for you. And as soon as you get up and leave the chair... They start going bonk, bonk, bonk again. Because guess what they've learned? The negative attention, the negative behavior is giving the mommy's attention. So you flip it around. So for the first week, honestly, even if the only positive behavior a kid has is like 
to sit up on one elbow when you're trying to get them out of bed. You go, oh, I see you're getting up. This is great, right? And give them a little kiss. Is you find anything you like that they're doing and reward it with attention. Give them love. Compliment them on them. Give them a little touch-touch on the shoulder, whatever. Just be nice to them. So now they realize, oh, there's a new cocaine out there. It's the happy mommy. Wow, that's what I have to do to get that? So then, week two, after you've caught them being good all week, the first time they do the negative behavior, other rule is don't try to change every single behavior at once. If you're doing tantrum extinction, great. If you're trying to get them to school on time, great. Whatever negative behavior you have, um, and you do one at a time. And what you do now is as soon as they start the negative behavior, you say, you tell them the behavior you want, and say, you will get a response from me when I see the good behavior. So in my case, even though she was screaming at the top of her lungs, I was told that she could still hear me. I said, when you do a behavior that I like, which was when I hear a voice that I like, you'll get mommy's attention. And that girl screamed for 45 minutes. She tried to break things. She tore up the house. And I had to run around now again, not slamming cupboards and uh, whistling under my breath and sighing. I had to pretend that nothing was happening. I got myself busy. I folded laundry. I loaded the dishwasher. I cleaned up. I did so much stuff. Anyway, eventually she tore the sweatshirt I was wearing, literally, to trying to get my attention because I'm walking around ignoring her. And I looked down, ready to lose my mind, and instead said to myself, wow, I haven't done any sewing in a while. I said it out loud, too. So I went up and got the sewing kit, and I was trying to thread the needle. I'd taken the sweatshirt off, and I was trying to thread the needle. Kid is still screaming, full-on scream. Been screaming for 45 minutes. And all of a sudden, she flipped like a light switch flipped off. Kid goes, hey, Mommy, I can help you thread that needle. And you know, at that point, I wanted to give her bad mommy. But remember, I have her hooked on a new cocaine now, which is good mommy. And that's behavior I like, right? It was a voice I like. That's what I promised, right? So I had to say, oh, really, honey? Come, let's sew together. And so after listening to screaming for 45 minutes and destroying my house, we sat there and I showed her how to sew together the tear on my sweatshirt. I didn't say, oh, you could have controlled yourself earlier. Well, we wouldn't have this problem if you didn't tear my sweatshirt. I did not give her negative reward for positive behavior. I gave her good mommy for good behavior. Guess what? After that horrible day, she didn't have a tantrum for like six weeks. After having three a day for six years, there was a little regression from time to time, and I realized it was all my reward system. So here's what you need to do, parents. Catch your kids being good more regularly. Give them a positive reward. Give them love for being good. And when you have negative behavior, ignore the negative behavior and say, you will get my attention when I see the behavior I like. You will be amazed at the transformation in your life. You've just got to focus on calming down yourself while the negative behavior is taking place. All right, we're going to continue with more parenting tips when we come back. You're listening to The Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI. Oh, help me. Welcome back to the Dr. Wendy Wall Show on KFI AM 640. We are into the home stretch, and why don't I talk about the home stretch of parenting? The empty nest, or the approaching empty nest. Boy, that's bittersweet, isn't it? There's a part of you that wants your clean house back without all the stuff and this uh, near-adult child bossing you around and heading off to college. 
And then there's a part of you that's like your umbilical cord is being ripped out. It's so hard to imagine when you hold this sweet little darling newborn baby at your arms and you want to protect it and care for it. And you make every decision for them to protect them for many, many years. Uh, it's hard to imagine that they're going to go, see ya later. And there is feelings of loss about that. But know this, that the empty nest period is longer than it's ever been in history. In 1900, the empty nest lasted an average of two years, and it occurred in a couple's old age. Why? We were agrarian. We lived on farms. People stayed. They might have built a farmhouse, you know, a few yards away from the original house. They might have moved into the big house, and the parents lived in a guest room before they died, right? The other thing is, um, in the agrarian time when people were having babies and babies and babies and babies, older babies were having babies at the same time as mama was still having babies, meaning that grandkids were showing up while mom was still having babies. I actually have that situation because I had a farm grandmother who had seven kids and her oldest daughter, she had six kids at one point and her oldest daughter got married and left the house and had a baby. That's my cousin. And then my grandma had another baby. So I have an aunt who's younger than my cousin. And yeah. So there really was no time for empty nests. Babies were just coming, right? But now we have this new phenomenon that can last a really long time, a time when parents are relatively young, energetic, effective, uh, got a lot going on between the ages of, say, I don't know, 47 and 60. There's a big long chunk there before they may even retire, but their nest is empty. Now, you might think, that the empty nest period begins when the last child finally leaves the nest. Uh -uh Uh-uh-uh. Emotionally, the empty nest period begins when the first kid leaves. I can attest to this. I have a college sophomore, and while it was rough when she left, I cried so hard. It was, I mean, the 13-year-old was in the car at LAX videotaping me crying and texting it to her sister who was getting on the plane for Boston to go to school. Oh, I just want to say one other thing. Am I the only parent left in America who puts her kid on a plane and says, go to school? She gets there and she's like, everybody has their moms here moving into their dorm room. I'm like, sorry, I couldn't make it. I got another kid. She had school. What am I supposed to do? Um, Nobody came to my dorm room and got me all set up way back when. You just didn't do it. So did they have any kind of like uh, parents day before you went like orientation that you went to the? No, Oh no. She went, actually, here's the crazy thing. She went on a freshman orientation program for a week where they went off into the wilderness, where they had to schlep their own food, portage their own canoes, and no showers. I mean, if you could have seen the rules they had to bring, they had to, uh, I'm going to be gross. They had to carry out their used feminine products because you couldn't leave any any, uh, litter in the woods, right? It was craziness. And that's how they bonded and that's how they all begin. So then what was I supposed to do? After she'd already been with her peeps for a week, then I'm supposed to fly out. Apparently parents did. Yeah. How, how do you follow that up? Come on. Yeah. Carrying out feminine products out of the forest. Right. Again, she's on her own now. She can do that. <laughs> yeah. And wait, so she's on a semester abroad in Sweden right now. Even her semester abroad, ma- her mom, her roommate's mom showed up to help set up their little apartment. I'm like, you're a freaking sophomore. You guys are almost turning 20. P.S. Since I let my kids be so independent and taught them to be so independent. Not that we're not attached. We love each other deeply. Uh, my kid spends every weekend getting on a train or a plane and going somewhere around Europe by herself. She finds an Airbnb. 
She went to Paris, checked into this cool Paris girl's apartment, had a fun time for the weekend. I mean, she's just very, she's gotten around the world. Okay, but emotionally, mom and dad, the empty nest begins to happen for you when the first one leaves. It, that's the other thing, is you look at the ones left over and you're like, can you hurry up and grow up, please? Don't feel guilty. These are normal, natural feelings. You're starting to think, wow, I'm going to get my life back. And you know the first thing we do, we remodel our house or redecorate or at least clean the heck out of it because there's something about doing I did that over the last two years. I've been remodeling and it just looks like I keep saying, I want it to look like a magazine. I don't want kids stuff everywhere. I'm done with primary colored anything. Um, the empty nest affects the genders differently. Obviously, it tends to affect moms worse. And, it, you know, real feelings of anxiety and depression can happen because of it. But it can big time affect the marriage because you guys had a system whatever it was whether the mom worked the most or the dad worked the most and who did more of the driving or the child care who cares what gender you had a system and now one of the purposes i might even say the primary purpose of your relationship is ending so you have to reinvent your marriage if you're going to stay together i always have a joke it's a sort of dark joke that i say to friends when they're like getting ready for the empty nest. And I go, so you're going to get the empty nest dog or the empty nest divorce? Because they do. They either like get all these dogs all of a sudden and treat them like kids. Or worse, I have a friend who let every one of her sons move right back in after college. They've got men in their late 20s living in the house because the parents have no job if they don't have the people around. So I do want to say this. Spend some time getting to know your spouse again. Reinvent your marriage this is an opportunity for you to have a new purpose together. Um, in the short term, though, if you are experiencing empty nest feelings, accept your feelings. If you feel sad, don't get mad at yourself. You should just feel proud of yourself. It means you're a good parent and you're having necessary feelings of loss as you adapt. Um, do make, make plans with your kid who's head, headed off to college whether it's holiday plans coming up, know ahead of time. Don't wait for the last minute. So you have something to look forward to. Um, and you can stay close when they're far away because of technology, but not too close. I mean, I know people whose college students and the parents are texting like five times a day. It's a little much. Okay, they need to be on their own. They need to figure out who they are. Speaking of which, after they go away for a while, now I'm near the end of the second year, of my kid being gone, sometimes they come back and sometimes you have uh, ambivalent feelings or me, maybe I have ambivalent feelings, but I'm like, I'm sort of happy that she's coming back this summer to work in LA, but I'm like, oh, she's going to bring all her mess. She was the one with the messy room and I just got her room all remodeled and decorated and oh, it's going to be a mess and she's going to have all the friends over and oh no. And she's the bossy one of the family. Like, I think I just want visits from now on. I love my kid. Don't get me wrong. I'm so excited to see my kid. I love her, love her, love her. But, um, but my house is clean now. So I wanted to say this. Parenthood is the hardest job ever. If you do it right, you work yourself out of a job. And you have to deal with those feelings of loss. It can be hard. It can be a very confusing kind of relationship. Um, but eventually, you're going to find yourself, and you're going to find a new purpose in your life. Well, thanks so much for being with me on the Dr. Wendy Wall Show here on KFI AM 640. 
Um, usually here every Wednesday in the 1 o'clock hour on the Gary and Shannon Show and every Friday from 4 to 6. You can also always find me on the iHeartRadio app. Just keyword, Dr. Wendy. And follow me online. The handle everywhere is Dr. Wendy Walsh, just D-R, Wendy Walsh, W-A-L-S-H. Thanks for being with me. We'll see you next time.